Welcome to Uncommon Core, where we explore the big ideas in crypto from first principles. Today, I'm not only joined by a very special guest, but the format of this episode is highly unusual as well. I interviewed the man who goes by the name at Legion Spartan on Twitter, and who is one of the biggest and most enigmatic DeFi investors there is. I have wanted to have him on for a long time, but there was one problem. Dejan Spartan, or DS in short, is fully pseudonymous and did not even want to have his voice known. So we looked for a solution and ended up doing a text interview instead. Then I got Patrick McCory, who is at Paddy Pisa on Twitter, to speak the part of DS in the final recording while I spoke my own part. At this point, I want to give a huge thank you to everyone who reached out to us on Twitter and offered their help to make this episode a reality. I get that this isn't your average podcast episode, and you're free to go and read the text interview instead if you want, but I think Paddy did a fantastic job as DS, and the final product came out great, so please enjoy. First of all, thanks so much for coming on the show, DS. I always thought you're not just one of the most educational, but also one of the most entertaining people on crypto Twitter. <laughs> thanks for having me on. Um, I've been listening to your podcast since it began, and I'm a really big fan. So it's pretty surreal for me to be here right now. Thanks, thanks. So y you have an incredible story um, from starting out as a retail investor um, who bought the Ethereum top in 2017-18 to becoming one of the biggest DeFi investors in the world. How did you manage to do that? And um, what set you apart from so many others coming from the same place? Um, I, I doubt I'm one of the biggest. Uh, perhaps I'm, more, I'm, I'm one of the more prolific participants that is actually retail rather than professional. I have a finance background. And I was pretty. I was a pretty active investor in the traditional markets before I switched over to solely focus on crypto. So I think that sort of background gave me a pretty decent edge when thinking about the various cryptocurrencies as investments, or even just working out what strategies to employ in the market to make good money. Without doxing yourself too much, is there anything more that you can say about your specific skill sets and interests that you had before finding this space? I'm thinking in particular. Um, what made, made you see the potential in crypto and DeFi to begin with and um, form the level of conviction that is necessary to become a full-time investor? Um, well, before coming into crypto, I was just your typical retail investor. I was looking at stocks, bonds, RAITs, all those typical things you'd expect a regular Joe to be dabbling in while they work out their long-term investment strategy to retire. You know, one of the concept, concepts that were really popular at the time was the idea of income investing, which is looking for businesses that can pay out a steady dividend or interest income. And that would be the core part of helping you, you know, fire, which is this popular idea these days to be financially free, retire early by having income exceed expenses. So, so one of the things I was, you know, particularly sensitive to was uh, yield investing. And I'd search high and low to find investments that could give me a decent income or dividend uh, without my capital being at risk. 
And I'd say that most things end up with roughly the same kinds of returns you'd expect, you know, like 6% PA or even lower for the, you know, the, the safer stuff. And one of the things I first noticed when I joined the crypto space was the rampant mispricing between exchanges and the insane arbitrage opportunities. Um, you know, I, I just kept comparing the numbers and just doing the math because I, I just couldn't believe it. There were opportunities where you could use a few thousand dollars to make $50 in net arbitrage returns. And I saw this happening, you know, several times a day on several pairs. You know, sure, $50 net, that isn't very much. But if you can do that a few times a day and the markets are open seven days a week, well, you know, I just did the math and this blew my mind that you could arbitrate versus amazing returns. And keep in mind, you know, this is all manual and by hand. I'm, I wasn't using bots to do this. And then, you know, after engaging in arbitrage for a while, that was one of the things that really, you know, solidified my view that the crypto markets are just extremely inefficient. And this inefficiency also meant profit opportunity. And I was just really, you know, motivated to come into this space and hustle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, to, to go back to, um, to the start of your answer, I love that you started out as a fixed income uh, slash dividend investor, because I always had this hunch that basically, despite this kind of Dijon brand that you have created for yourself on Twitter, <laughs> um, that you're actually a very prudent risk manager below the surface. Um, so we, we do have to touch on that for, for a moment. So why, why did you choose this as your alter ego? Uh, perhaps a prudent Spartan rebranded in the future might be in order, uh, but no one actually believes I'm a D-Gen anymore. Um, I guess when I was deciding my alter ego, you know, I, I didn't really want to restrict myself to being this permanent cheerleader for of any Pacific coin or project. So I purposely avoided including something like Bitcoin in my name. You know, I wanted something uh, a bit more natural, but I also wanted something that could remind me, myself, that uh, that crypto is really just this crazy space and anything can happen. Uh, so I guess it also worked out well that my DGen branding can also serve as a very obvious warning to others to consider the stuff that I talk about. You know, I, I never really expected I'd be able to get such a following on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I do hope that the newer followers, uh, that they're, you know, like the newer followers who are not aware of my inside jokes and humor, you know, that they just don't take everything that I said face value. Um, I guess as well, it, it worries me sometimes that when I make jokes about buying or selling something, others just copy that because, you know, I'm a, I'm an influenza, you know, AK this influencer, uh, you know, pun intended there. Uh, I think I've managed to prevent a lot of that kind of copy trading behavior to a minimum by constantly just rolling out these, you know, psyops uh, uh, campaigns so that followers can think a bit more before they ape into things based on, based on basically what I say on Twitter. The Spartan bit, um, I guess the Spartan bit just came about because you know, Spartans are pretty badass and cool, aren't they? So, uh, yeah, that's why. Um, yeah, you know, I, I love the way that you use the PSYOPs on Twitter. Um, be, it, because it always makes me think, for sure. And that's something that not a lot of accounts um, can do consistently. But what I found um, most impressive about your um, performance is that you are not 
DeFi yes man, like so many others are. And you were extremely early to DeFi, but you were also one of the first to say, um, guys, I think as an industry, we are growing too fast right now. And um, I think we are seeing signs of extreme exuberance. And I think, I think the top is in. How did you manage to do that? And what were those signs? Um, yeah, well, I, I guess the DeFi top was in late August. Uh, that was just a really, really crazy time for me with all the farming going on. I would say the start of the DeFi hype was probably the launch of Comp. And basically since that day, you know, I've been sleeping three to four hours a night just trying to stay on top of everything. Uh, I, I've been in this space for a while, mm -hmm. so I think I have a pretty good stamina as a participant. But this was just going on for weeks and weeks. Uh, the thing was, though, it was just really that the quality of the projects popping out were just starting to deteriorate at a very quick pace. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we had, we had Yam, and then we had a dozen Yam-inspired food clones. Mm -hmm. We had Wifey. And then again, we had a dozen more wifeys inspired, these fair lunch clones. And these cycles just kept repeating. And every new thing just got shorter and shorter as people realized that, you know, the, the optimal strategy here was really just the exit earlier than others, uh, basically front run other people. And everyone was trying to front run everyone else on the way out. You know, initially the Yam game, that took, I think, what, two weeks to play out. The last of the food farms that I was looking at were collapsing within a day or two. Um, I mean, I guess, of course, you know, as a heavy DeFi user, I was also just pretty active throughout this entire period. I was just moving farm to farm as an honest farmer, um, being on the front lines and seeing how, you know, how much worse, you know, every new project got was playing out. Mm -hmm. And that was basically a tell for me that, you know, this insanity would eventually have the end. Uh, personally, I actually felt the sushi swap was the top. Uh, sushi swap, uh, it was, you know, it was by far the riskiest type of DeFi farming that had come on the scene. Uh, previously, the only time you'd be taking risks, you know, other than this malicious or, you know, smart contract risk, uh, would be if you were braver, I guess, silly enough to participate in the pull twos of the farming projects. And SushiSwap pretty much has forced all of these, you know, farming participants, you know, most of whom have never done liquidity provision before. They all suddenly just injected hundreds of millions of liquidity in the Uniswap. And one of the problems with these DeFi tokens until that point were, uh, were that these, you know, these DeFi tokens were just pretty illiquid. And now with SushiSwaps is incentivizing everyone to provide liquidity. It just created this, huge opportunity for anyone looking the exit to finally swim out to this massive ocean of liquidity. And I guess at the same time, uh, you know, while all this was going on, I was just printing a massive amount of money every day, you know, by just participating in SushiSwap. It was just so surreal. You know, I kept saying to myself, this is retarded. This doesn't make any sense. You know, what could be more silly than this? I was pretty much scared of how ridiculously rich I was getting each passing day. And that made me stop and think, um, you know, I should probably get out now. 
the last time I had these kind of ridiculous thoughts were uh, the 2017 peaks. Uh, you know what? That didn't really end too well for me. So um, I learned my lesson from that. Um, so you're saying not only would basically the, 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 the prices of these tokens collapse when the subsidy ends, but it also provided exit liquidity for their largest holders? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, I sort of had guessed that stuff like, you know, Yam and Wifey, you know, there'd probably be more sushi-style clones popping up They really use these Uniswap LP shares as farming assets in their pool ones. Uh, as we did see with things like uh, Sashimi and, you know, Moonswap, but it's just like how all these uh, other projects collapsed really fast. You know, that basically happened there as well. Uh, so my thesis eventually became that, you know, none of these clones could provide as much liquidity as SushiSwap during the initial reward period. And that shrinking liquidity would just cause larger holders to head for the exit, you know, while the liquidity ocean was still available to them. Um, and I guess basically... Everyone was farming at hundreds of percent of annual yields for the past month or so. You know, how many people would want to send those assets back to their native protocol to be used, you know, as intended and probably earn either massively reduced returns, you know, relatively speaking, or some of them earn you know, just nothing at all. So um, I guess it was this confluence, you know, uh, the ever increasing sediments of revolving around the DeFi farming situation and uh, the thesis that is going to be pretty hard for anyone, anything, sorry, to uh, top SushiSwap as a DeFi farm. And that made me think that we'll probably be heading lower once reality sets in that this is can't last forever. You know, we didn't invest in some perpetual free money machine based on digital food farming, you know, so... Um, Yeah, eventually had the end. Yeah. So how do you manage to, to keep enough distance to these investments that you can actually sell them after they have made you a lot of money? Because, I mean, as we know, investors tend to get pretty emotionally attached um, to those investments. Um, well, one of the things I do, I guess, rather differently than other traders or investors is that I never actually have a specific price target. For me, the decision to buy or sell should really be based on the sediment you know, just regarding that project. If the price had gone up, uh, but there are still plenty of disbelievers or you hear comments that people have only just dipped their toes in, I'd assume that there's more sideline fire party to keep the party going. I think it is pretty much a question of You know, who's going to buy these coins next? And is there anyone after that? But it's definitely more an art than a science. Um, I mean, what you could also do is, you know, you can always just sell a bit and then another bit and just see if things are still going well before you start selling again. You know, every peak has a leg on both sides. Uh, but some people seem to forget that you can also just sell on the right side post-peak as it's going down as well. So as long as you don't have this mental stigma of, you know, oh no, but I'm not selling at the all time highs. That holds you back from selling. Um, how, how do you measure sentiment? Uh, I think it's just really hard. 
But it's also one of the reasons why I use Twitter so much. You know, you get these sneak peeks of things happening in the nooks and crannies of our universe. People having conversations on what they did, how they felt, what they plan to do next, all in public view. Uh, I use all the different social media to spy on and to chat with other investors on how they feel and then just try to figure out what I think the different players want to do next. Mm-hmm. It's probably probably a pretty trust way of doing things. I'm sure some uh, statisticians would cringe at what I just said and roll their eyes that I consider this method even useful by any measure. But uh, I just don't know any better way to do it. So um, that's that's what I do. I mean, I, I know that I always trust uh, the practitioner in that case. Um, so how how would you describe your approach to investing in general? I mean, you just mentioned sentiment, but you have always struck me as someone who pays a lot of attention to the fundamentals as well. So what do you watch out for and how long do you usually hold a position? And maybe do you trade long as well as short? Um, I think my crypto so far, my approach has been to play the contrarian, finding a pretty unpopular thesis an investment is just trying to suss it out. If it actually has the fundamentals to shake things up. It basically means I try to work out in the niches that the pros aren't looking at and the attention really isn't on it. That means I'm not competing with smarter and more talented people that would beat me in a fair fight. I'm winning by playing a game that they didn't even know was going on. Mm-hmm. This makes my job as a capital allocator easier since I don't need to compete with others when accumulating my positions. And they don't bid out my average investment price as well. Of course, um, I'm not just looking at on love segments. The idea has to make some sense as well. You know, combine mm-hmm. a rather on love project with improving fundamentals to back it up. And I think that's the recipe to get a high profit multiple. I'll hold a position for as long as I think there's still upside. Though I may pare down a size as it becomes too large relative to the rest of my portfolio. I almost never short because I'm just really terrible at it. And given just how irrational the crypto markets are, I think playing the short side of things is massively difficult and riskier. I don't think it is worth it unless it is some really obvious play and I have the collateral liquidity to open a short. I think it is definitely, you know, this is a lot easier to be a bull rather than a bear in crypto. You know, during the recent DeFi drop, I felt really uneasy being bearish the whole time. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, when can I just get back in and just post bullish nonsense? So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean... I guess the kind of like the danger of short selling was really uh, in DeFi in particular was really emphasized when um, we had uh, basically people on Twitter getting together and and chasing like the large shorts, trying to liquidate them and some of the tokens like YFI and and so on that really like had 100% increases in price from the bottom. And that was really unexpected for me as well. Um, But next... I'd love to learn how you think about a few different uh, of the projects that we, that we touched on um, so far. And um, more than, than any other project, you have become associated with uh, synthetics. 
you're known as their quote unquote patient zero who brought many other big investors in. Can you describe for our listeners what is Synthetix? When did you find it? And um, most importantly, how did you recognize its potential? Pearson Zero, that, this is hilarious. <laughs> I can't believe you yeah, hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> yeah, um, I suppose Synthetix is best thought of as its, as its derivatives or th uh, Synthetix protocol. Uh, it basically allows you to go long or short on supported synthetic assets. Uh, since the positions are synthetic, you know, the assets aren't, they're not really restricted to just ERC-20 tokens. But, you know, they can cover a wide range of non-Ethereum-based crypto assets like Bitcoin and Ripple, and also non-crypto assets like precious metals and equity indices. Um, pretty much the sky's the limit. As long as there's a price feed somewhere, it could become a synthetic asset on the platform. I think um, I think it's mostly just dumb dumb luck to be honest. You know, synthetics was originally Haven, and that was a decentralized stablecoin project that had the idea of tagging protocol fees every time a transaction was made. But then you had these centralized stablecoins pop up, like you know G GUSD, USDC, and of course Tether. You know USDT uh, pretty much killed that idea of a stablecoin that could charge fees every time you move it. Um, I viewed the pivot to synthetic assets as a Hail Mary that actually was successful. But as I understand it, it was actually more of a mindset change for the community regarding the path of the project, you know, rather than a technical change. Mm -hmm. uh, because it still leveraged the, you know, the pool debt model that the original Haven was based on. You know, they just really figured out that the pool debt could be used for so many more things. And I guess I just got sold in that pivot as well. Um, I think it was just easier for me to accept than I just the pivot because I understood technically why it was possible to pivot and what they were trying to do with the new direction. But I, I really will to still credit myself with some dumb luck. And mostly this, uh, the synthetics team's big brain realization that they could pivot to something, something larger as the main reasons why, you know, N uh, SNX turned out to be a good investment for me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I do remember reading about Haven uh, as well back in the day and thinking that their model of, you know, charging fees on transfers, that that would probably not be sustainable. Um, but, I mean, it's I guess it's a really easy mistake to make that when basically you see a project and you, you find some something that you see as a terminal flaw, than to write that project off and not pay attention to it anymore without realizing that, I mean, this is the teams can actually pivot in crypto, right? As well. And, um, and many of the, the projects that we see, uh, have success today actually are the result of such, um, such pivots. Um, how has your view on synthetics changed since then? And are you happy with the current direction and, um, and what, what maybe do you think is the end game for them? Because I get in my mind, so the biggest, in my mind, the biggest question would be when does synthetics feel comfortable issuing shares or not shares, but issuing synthetics on individual US securities, right? I, would you say that is the watershed moment for the, the DeFi synthetic space in general? Um, Perhaps not many of the current community share this aspiration of mine. 
But I really, you know, I really want to see synthetic stable coins outside of USD being used outside of trading purposes and as an alternative to official digital fiat currencies. Uh, Synthetics is unique in its design in that it could actually bootstrap crypto versions of various fiat. And it really does overcome the liquidity problems that any custodial stable coin would have when interacting with the rest of the market. You know, perhaps one day far in the future that could happen. Um, I guess the general end game that most of the community does share is to become a multi-asset version of BitMEX, allowing traders to trade on a variety of assets, long or short, you know, with the option of using leverage. Um, About individual US securities, perhaps that could come after the project can further decentralize itself from regulatory actions. I think we are fast approaching the point where the team does not have control over everything. I you know is you know sufficiently decentralized that you just can't round up everyone in a room and say, "Okay, guys, stop trading." You know, stop being degen. But um, I mean, overall, though, I guess I actually feel the watershed moment will be the perpetual swaps in layer two of leverage, not really these uh, individual U.S. securities. Okay, um, so the way trading works on BitMEX for our listeners um, is they only match external market participants with each other, right? So for every customer's long position, there's another customer who necessarily holds the short position to that. As a result, BitMEX doesn't occur any balance sheet risk, no matter what trading occurs on its platform. But synthetics is different from that in that the, the SNX stakers they take the other side of every synthetic that's outstanding. So for every SUSD in circulation, the, the SNX stakers are short USD SNX. For every SBTC, they are short BTC SNX and so on. Um, do you see any material risk from that approach? And um, what do the current stakers do to hedge that risk? Yeah, I mean, that's why the perpetual model to me is the watershed moment. Uh, that will be when the protocol is aware of the imbalance of positions and the funding rate could exist to get people uh, to get people to balance out the positions. And there's always been a concern that I raised up early on. So I'm really eager to see that upgrade when it finally goes live. I'd expect that it would make the risk exposure of synthetic minters to be squeezed into a narrower band, you know, really reducing the risk of them being costed really offside by large winning traders on the platform. And as well, you know, hedging is pretty clunky right now. In fact, I thought people don't really worry enough about it, but synthetics has rolled out uh, stopgap measures of paying for shorters through staking inverse synthetic positions in BTC or ETH. And since that program has launched, the skew of positions and the risk that minters take on has reduced drastically, at least from my perspective. I'd consider it a small success for now, but uh, I really think it is not very elegant at all. Um, yeah, right. I, I saw that you can now get um, SNX rewards for minting and staking IBTC and IETH with just these inverse synthetics. Um, and the reason they do that is because it helps de-risk the exposure of 
the staircase somewhat. So I, I agree that's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, speaking of, of Haven and, and SUSD, though, another project that um, both of us have been vocal critics, critics of in the past is Maker. Um, can you say more about why you don't like it? Oh, boy. Uh, Maker. <laughs> um, I'd say that my main critique is their design, which I feel is inadequate because it lacks the ability to go negative and the mm -hmm. charge you know, die holder for stability. Or from another perspective, it is unable to incentivize die supply creation. Another design issue that I have in the maker protocol is their three-party system. You know, there's these three parties. You have the die holders, you know, or the user, uh, the die supplier, the, the CDP owner, and actually the maker holders themselves. I think their three stakeholder system creates a weird, you know, tension in every situation and the decision-making, because it always seems that one of the three parties is made a loser at the benefit of the other two parties. My last bit is less about the protocol and more about their, you know, token value accrual design. Uh, I don't really like buy and burn models because you need to assume, you know, you need to assume going concern on a secondary market bid. I prefer fee collecting and strip distributing models because it is straightforward and self-serving. But I suppose this could be a security avoidance slice tax decision to have things done this way. Um, what do you mean by going concern? Um, that it continues indefinitely to be able to realize eventual gains when you eventually want to sell. As opposed to a fee distribution model that if it ceases operations, at least you've recouped some of your investments from the fees distributed until that point. So after the March events um, and then compound yield farming, um, after those had um, catapulted die to trade consistently above a dollar and five cents, I thought that um, Maker would reach, would for sure reach a boiling point and um, that they'd finally be forced to Uh, integrated negative interest rates that we both have been waiting for for so long. Um, but what they did instead was to, to flood the system with centralized stablecoins um, that they can't even charge stability fees, fees on, I mean, to get the pack back down. Um, what do you think of that? And, um, and maybe also their, what do you think about their focus on implementing um, real-world collateral compared to issuing more synthetics than just DAI from the, the trustless collateral that we already have. I always thought that these were would be the two obvious routes to, to choose between. Yeah, I mean, I think accepting centralized stablecoins as collateral really hurt the, you know, the whole DAI as a pure decentralized stablecoin narrative that it largely enjoyed. Yeah. You know, a lot of the strong, yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of the strongest supporters had to do a lot of soul searching to decide if this is the direction, you know, something that they can really support. I felt their community fractured quite a bit since March. And I mean, it has given, uh, it has given rise to like competitors, like, like Reflexer. Uh, yeah. Their stablecoin Ray, right. That no one had even like dared attack. Maker uh, and becoming more trustless before that point. Yeah, 
Um, in fact, I'm, I'm actually tempted to put on my tinfoil hat and say that everything they have been doing was planned all along and that it'd be too easy for their supporters to tear apart. To be honest, I'm not really sure what their endgame is. Their holders seem to be out of touch with reality, where it took them months to accept Link as collateral why Mana was collateral all along. I don't get it. I don't know what they are doing. I pretty much view Maker as entertainment at this point. You know, what's their end game? I have no idea. Okay, okay. Um, the last project um, I want to talk to you about is, is your own finance. Um, you, you have been like a, maybe one of the most prominent skeptics in the past, and um, you did not buy into the hype at all. So why were you skeptical? And and when 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 Wifey did this spectacular run up to forty k dollars, did that make you question yourself at all? Uh, I mean, my skepticism was from day one. I was familiar with Y Curve and the Iron products for a while since I've always kept a close. You know, I've always I've always kept close to my yield seeking roots. I almost didn't even want to farm wifey tokens because I was thinking, you know, what would they govern? What products, streams are they gen- are they governing? Where are the fees being generated that they can vote to redirect the token holders? But of course, the price of the token was going nuts. So, of, of course, I, I farmed them hard. Um, I could not understand why people were buying into the tokens. You know, did Andre Pinky promise that he would do some pro bono work for all the wifey holders exclusively until he retires. <laughs> to be honest, I was perplexed that Andre kept releasing things under wifey umbrella uh, and banner at all. Um, for example, why, you know, do Y vaults need to be Y vaults to me? They could have easily, uh, you know, they could just as easily have been Andre vaults and Andre himself collects the fee for maintaining and managing the vault. But I suppose he wanted a body to be able to recognize themselves and do that instead. I did not expect Andre to keep building things and injecting them under the wifey umbrella. It was also just excellent timing of the universe that Curve launched CRV shortly after Y vaults. And, you know, directing the vaults to farm it was just ridiculously profitable for everyone involved. Everyone was euphoric about the cash flows coming in from the vaults. But were these cash flows sustainable? In my opinion, you know, not by a long shot, you know, yield above 20% is an anomaly in this world that would be cracked sooner or later. Of course, seeing the token price run up, there was always a thought of, damn, if I'd held until now, I could have made X much more profit. But fundamentally, I couldn't do it. I couldn't just buy back in. The math didn't make sense to me. It still doesn't. I can appreciate it has a fun pair, you know, a fun trading pair. But when I started thinking about the fundamentals, it just falls back to, to narratives of a magical future and the numbers just don't make sense to me. Maybe I'm really offside on this. I guess I'll just have to live with it. You know, you can't catch every single run on every crypto. Even if I was in Wi-Fi, I never have the conviction to, the conviction to hold it, which is why I sold it when I did, when I did have it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think your arguments make a lot of sense. And I, I too would be really surprised if the yield farming opportunities don't compress a lot in the future. 
especially for large pools of capital uh, that run completely <laughs> transparent strategies, right? That that the market can just copy for free. Um, but since since you mentioned the the governing capabilities um, of Wi-Fi, um, that brings us actually to the final topic that I have planned for today. Um, you have been one of the more vocal skeptics of governance tokens in general. Would you say that you're that you're a governance minimalist? Um, I never really thought about my own classification, but yeah, I guess um, I would say I'm a governance minimalist. So let's look at the real world. You know, governments can be a mess and do more harm than good. The whole idea of governance tokens being valuable because they can vote in fees later, this doesn't sit very well with me. Could, could Maker be a good example of a, a governance token that's having a hard time voting in fees for its token holders? And I guess you know, it, maybe it's not really seeing strong value occur to its token. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I feel that governance token holders that extract rent uh, are free riding quite heavily in proportion to the value that they create. You know, does holding wifey and rubber stamping governance proposals create value? Or are the builders that operate under the Wi-Fi umbrella the ones that create the value? The flow of who is creating value and who is earning that value seems strange to me. Perhaps tying governance tokens to more you know, quantifiable work than just voting for proposals may be a better way to get holders to be value creators as well instead of, in my opinion, just free writers. Well, that's, a, that's a fantastic way to close this off. This was great. Um, yes, thanks so much for taking the time.